morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics, and one of the topics that I find encouraging rather than tough is all of the activity, all of the um, um, information that we have about trauma-informed services. And uh, one of the things that led this whole notion about trauma-informed services as far as education and um, law enforcement and is the ACEs study. And we were very fortunate uh, a month or so ago to have Dr. Vincent Felitti, author, or one of the authors of the uh, ACEs study, on our show to talk about what that was. And today I'm honored to also have Dr. Andrew Seaman, who is with OSHA. Oh, oh, how, do you, how do you say the acronym for the, for the show, for your university? Oregon? Uh, OHSU, uh, Oregon Health and Sciences you University. Just, you, you don't actually just, you don't make it into a word, you just say OHSU? That's right. Okay, Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Andrew Seaman, the reason that he is on our show, and welcome very much to the show, is because he's kind of come up with a program to work with medical students uh, surrounding the information from the ACEs science. Welcome, Dr. Seaman. Thank you for having me. Great. Tell me a little bit about your background and what led you to uh, kind of pay attention to the ACEs study and what what's going on with that? Well, as as always, uh, this is something that my my patients have have taught me. Um, I worked in Rwanda for a year among a population that's almost universally traumatized, both childhood and and adult onset, and that got me thinking about it. And then I came back to the United States in 2014 and started to work with OHSU and Central City Concern at a healthcare for the homeless clinic uh, called Old Town Clinic. Uh, it's really uh, quite an extraordinary place. And once again, it's uh, the unifying theme is not homelessness or substance use disorders or, or mental illness, but uh, early childhood trauma uh, is really the common unifying theme to the extent that I have really stopped screening for it. Um, given its ubiquity and really just worked on changing my practices to um, care for a, a traumatized population. Let's briefly uh, catch folks up on what the ACEs study is. And, of course, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And tell us what that means. Doesn't everybody have adverse childhood experiences at one time or another? The puppy dies, grandma passes away, whatever. Sure. Yeah. So the the, the ACEs study uh, was was groundbreaking on a couple of levels. So the adverse uh, childhood experiences study looked at uh, I don't have the number in, in my head thirteen thousand something patients uh, in the Kaiser system, and they sent interviews out asking about you know, severe early childhood experiences uh, such as uh, psychological abuse, physical or sexual abuse. Um, a child living in the home of uh, a family plagued by uh, a substance use disorder or, or severe mental illness, um, or uh, bystander trauma, such as witnessing a, a, a parent or, or caretaker um, being subjected to uh, physical violence. Um, and, and so, but to answer your second question, doesn't everyone have childhood trauma? Uh, no, but uh, what the ACEs study really showed, it, it did two things uh, that I think was important, at least in, in uh, things that I have found to be useful in 
training our young physicians. Uh, and to be clear, the, the training we've done was with medical residents uh, rather than students, but I hope to expand it at some point. The two things I think that the ACE study has done is it showed really how common it is. I mean, I think, it, if I remember correctly, the all-comers all uh, rate of experience of uh, adverse uh, childhood experiences was around 50%, about one in two. Um, and then uh, the, the second thing that was crucial uh, was that it, it linked adverse childhood experiences with um, health outcomes that people in the medical field already found significant. So coronary artery disease, um, uh, stroke, tobacco use, substance use, um, severe mental illness, suicide attempts, uh, and, and the list goes on. And some of them, I think, are intuitive, uh, perhaps, but others weren't. And I think that's what really got, um, or maybe now is getting the medical uh, establishment's attention. Well, yeah, and and it seems to me that when we're talking about these adverse childhood experiences, so uh, I was just reading an article the other day about an octogenarian. Um, I, well, I, I guess she wasn't. She was a. What, what do you call? It? What's the word for when they live over a hundred? Centenarian. Anyway, uh, she was yeah. a really old lady <laughs> who lived to be like 112 when she was in France. So is the logical huh. conclusion that these people who live have very extraordinarily long lifespans? Did they avoid trauma? How come they, you know, have a, a long life when we see so many other traumatized children suffering from health problems, et cetera, throughout the rest of their lives? Is there a correlation there? Oh, I have to say, I, I can't, I can't speak to the the extreme longevity. Um, what we do know is that people who suffer early childhood trauma uh, have. Uh, have are more likely to have shortened lives, and what the ACE study also showed is as a, a linear relationship. So if you have two tra traumatic events, you might have uh, uh, or one. So they 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 broke it down by category. So if you had one of these categories that I mentioned above, you might have you know twice the the odds ratio or the um, kind of likelihood of the general population of having. Um, you know, uh, an outcome such as uh, uh, ischemic heart disease. Uh, if you have two, you would have, you know, uh, oh, let me give you an actual example from the study. Um, if you had um, uh, one uh, ACE uh, experience uh, early on, you would have uh, two, uh, an odds ratio of two uh, or more, kind of two times more likelihood to have uh, severe depression. If you had uh, three or more, you would have almost five times the likelihood of have, having severe depression. And you see this sort of linearity. The more adverse events you've had, the more likelihood uh, you have of um, these these adverse outcomes. And and that, to us, that's, that's meaningful. It does imply some causation. So we know that the more of these events you have, the more uh, negative outcomes you have, and probably uh, the shorter life you have. And, and this is you know, bears out in, in what, we, what we're finding is in animal models and in some human models, we're finding that this trauma creates a brain disease. Trauma creates durable neurologic changes um, in animals and humans um, that, that persist through life. 
Yeah, you don't bounce back from those changes, do you? Yeah, and those certainly people can. Changes. Yeah, you can't unlearn them. You can relearn how to cope with the brain that you now have. You can relearn how to cope t- uh, with your uh, dysregulated uh, or maybe changed um, stress hormone system, but you can't, um, that we know of at least, um, unlearn or, or, or kind of grow back the brain you once had or once uh, had the potential to have. So let's take that information and how does that apply to an interaction with a physician? Why is it important that the residents learn about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study and the implication, what are the implications for medical doctors who are the people you're training? Well, I think, I think a lot of um, any human, I feel, you know, their, their base experience is their own experience. And so when we see a patient, you know, yelling at their nurses and, and, uh, or using substances that, that perhaps we feel uh, is detrimental and, and you'll hear all sorts of uh, quotes as to how people are harming themselves or choosing, you know, to be self-destructive. And I think... Uh, that that's these are are people speaking from their own experience, and if you are able to reach out and show medical students, residents, doctors that this experience is not universal, and that the experience and the uh, cognition, the um, the whole way of experiencing the world can be dramatically different if you've experienced trauma. It, it helps people stop and become more empathetic. And it also, and there, are, there are just specific tools that help care for a traumatized population better. So if you have a patient, one of the things I tried to do in our, our trauma-informed care block uh, this year was to really, one, you know, this is something, the reason why we don't understand how common adverse childhood experiences are is because we don't talk about it. So it is not apparent from everyday experience that half of our population has undergone some child, adverse childhood experiences and that, you know, a really significant proportion has had very severe adverse childhood experiences such as sexual abuse and, and so on. And so okay. we have to give we have to give trauma a face. And so one of the things, you know, we do, I try to do is develop, you know, longitudinal cases throughout the training session that people all have experience with. They all have, you know, the patient who was leaving, quote, against medical advice and so on. Um, and, and that way they're thinking about a patient that they know and experience that they have that was really hard for them as well as, as caretakers. And then also working with uh, peers. So this is people who have lived experience of trauma and often substance use and, and experience with the criminal justice system, uh, such as a, a colleague of mine, uh, Onisha Cochran, uh, who is a peer with our impact service, our inpatient addiction medicine service at OHSU. And this is someone who is willing to come up front and say, that, yeah, this is my experience, and this is what it's done to me, and this is how I want you to empathetically and compassionately care for people who have lived experience like me. And I think starting with giving it a face is, is really crucial. I think the other thing that's important is that people, these trauma causes, again, durable changes to people's brains. And if you can have awareness of that, 
and then have awareness, awareness of a number of tools that, that people have developed to help us uh, care for this population. It will dramatically change outcomes um, for the patient. It will change resident and physician's experience of caring for this population. I mean, for me, truly, there is no patient that I dread walking into the room anymore. There's no patient that that I'm, you know, I see their name on my on my schedule and I say, oh man, you know, so and so again. And and that's not the that's not the experience of most people working in healthcare. So if you and most of that comes out of learned health helplessness, I think, that you just, you know, every time I see this patient, they yell at me and, you know, they just want drugs or, or whatever it is that, that the um the uh whatever the script is. Um, but I think it comes from not knowing how to care for these folks. And so uh, others, and, and I have developed my own toolkit as well um, for for uh, residents and physicians that I find to be so useful. And um, it really is, a, it is, is a, a way out of feeling that way. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mention, uh, you know, how we see these things. Because we, I think people who've worked in the field of domestic violence for many years have seen the victim blaming and the dismissing of uh, symptoms and, and uh, um, behaviors from victims of domestic violence. They're just dismissed, whole, you know, almost universally mm-hmm. um, as being um, either irrelevant or something that they brought on themselves. Um, we all tend to look at other people's lives from the same lens in which we have lived our own life. And so if we have no experience with uh, domestic violence, if we have no experience with uh, adverse childhood experiences, um, we behave differently and we don't really see uh, the other person's perspective. And I think that's very, very common in what, whatever you're talking about. How does the program that you're offering um, these residents, how, are, is that helping them develop different lenses? Or how how will it benefit, how will it be able to sink through um, and really have an impact on how these physicians see their patients? You know, it's a great question, and, and, um, and we don't know yet. Um, this is a, a very new thing we're trying to do. Um, and, and, you know, I can only speak to the, the residents I've worked with more closely on an individual level and at my clinic at Old Town Clinic, who we've been working on in maybe a less formal way, trauma-informed care practices and education um, for, for several years now, that, that their experience of this population and their experience of this, the, quote, difficult patient in the hospital has radically changed. And, and several of them have become evangelists themselves for this idea. In fact, one of a, a former resident of mine, Alex Perry, uh, was was one of the people who me to to start this this block um, because it so changed his experience of medicine. And, and I and I also think that since the the impact service or the OHSU inpatient addiction medicine service has started, um, I have seen the learned helplessness for caring for addiction uh, drop off uh, dramatically. So residents who their rhetoric would previously perhaps have been, oh, I have another, you know, person who's here with, uh, who's an injection drug user, you know, which we like to not say anymore, right, people who inject drugs. Um, 
would, you know, they're here again with endocarditis or whatever. And they didn't know what to do, though. And they didn't have anywhere to send them. And there was no one to help them with their addiction in the inpatient service. And now they say, well, we're going to consult impact. And they learn from the impact team about trauma-informed care practices. And, and, and I've noticed that the language has changed. And the whole way of interacting with that person's addiction has changed because they have tools now and they know what to do. And, and when people don't know what to do and they feel helpless and they want to care for this human, they lash out. And, and I think just giving people the tools goes, goes such a long way. Outcomes-wise for our, our, our uh, trauma-informed care block, I have, I have no idea. And, and in fact, it's a fairly difficult uh, to study in depth, uh, but we can certainly study as far as outcomes for patient care uh, but we can certainly study um, resident experience, and, and that would be something we'd like to do in the future. Okay. So let's go back to what is the program? How does it work? I mean, do you just set them in a classroom and say, okay, so this is what happens when these people experience, you know, trauma at different levels and at different intensities and in different ways when they're young, and that's why you're seeing this? How do, how do, how do you educate? How does the program work? Well, so it's, it's, it's new and involving, uh, but the idea is we're trying to take uh, a bunch of very busy, very sleep-deprived doctors and find a way, first and foremost, to make sure they understand that, that this matters. This matters to them. This matters to their patients. This is real. This isn't soft science. Um, and so you try to, just like with, with your patients, you try to meet them where they are and so the first thing we do is present the ACE um, study just to show, one, again, how common it is. And common enough that when you're speaking to four different groups of um, 25 residents over the course of a month, in every single room there are going to be many people that have a personal history of adverse childhood trauma. So it's real to them as well. The second thing is, again, making a connection to real health outcomes. So doctors already care about these, um, you know, quote, hard health outcomes like coronary artery disease. And so making sure they understand we are talking about these things you already care about and are prescribing medicines for and providing preventative services for. So find a way to grab them. Then for the people who really need to see that brain chemistry change, they need to see these um, organic, hard uh, changes, we do go over a little bit of these, uh, the, the durable neurologic changes to uh, the stress hormone system, the noradrenergic system, um, and so on. Because I think if, if and this is not necessarily um, uh, flattering to the medical profession, but if, a lot of a lot of doctors are very concrete. We are concrete, simple folks in a lot of ways. That if you don't <laughs> see that physical change, people, yeah, they have a harder time buying into it. So, establishing buy-in, you know, this is the same way I would care for a traumatized human. You know, you first first you have to make sure people understand that that you are aligned with them and, and you're on their on their team. The second thing we do is, again, we try to give trauma a face. So we develop a case that they have all seen and experienced so that when they're listening to this story, they're reliving this, this moment at 2 a.m. where the, this patient who is highly traumatized is, you know, lashing out and threatening to leave and pull out their 
uh, indwelling catheter uh, for antibiotics, uh, you know, that they need to, to fix a, a, an infection in their heart valve and so on. These are very common stories and every resident has experience with this, but they don't have the tools to deal with it. And then we give uh, an then we provide uh, Anisha Cochran, one of our one of our peers, is there to to really demonstrate. Um, this is the face of trauma. I am the face of trauma, and I am the face of strength in trauma. Because when it comes down to it, patients are not to be pitied. They are strong people. My patients, you know, 35 year old woman who lived on the street for 15 years. That person has gone through some stuff and some things that I could not handle. You know, in my privileged background, I could not. I feel that I would, I would fall apart and crumble to the ground. And yet this person is here and they're alive and they're seeking health care. And, and so trying to convey then, this is about, okay, one, be aware of trauma. And this is something I adapted from uh, Dr. Jim Hopper at, at Harvard, a uh, study that he did or a paper, consensus paper that he put out that I thought was very useful. Be aware of trauma to make sure, first and foremost, establish safety for your patients the sense of safety for your patients and a sense of safety for the for the providers as well, and then three and four are really linked. And this is this is about empowerment. This is not about walking on eggshells around your patients. And this is about establishing and recognizing the strengths in our patients. So this these are the premises that we talk about and work through as we practice these skills later in the session. And then the second piece we do is we try to now focus on, okay, so this is the background. This is why you care. Let's focus on the tools. What are you going to do differently? And the toolkit that I established, um, mostly from listening to my patients, but also some through the literature, is the first thing, first and foremost, is environment. So when you have a patient who comes in and they're clearly triggered, and when I say triggered, I mean um, you know, someone whose body language is curled up, who's maybe not making eye contact, or perhaps instead of curled up, uh, lashing out and agitated, um, who's pacing around the room. Someone who you have a suspicion is not truly experiencing the present and are really um, living back in through some past um, traumatic event. Um, so establishing that someone is triggered the first thing to do is to evaluate the environment. So are you in a small room with a closed door and bright halogen lights? You should probably ask, is it okay if I open the door right now? Are you standing in the way of their exit? That's a safety issue. You need to get down low, so don't stand above someone, get down low, turn to the side, it's a less aggressive stance, maybe crouch, have the door open so all of a sudden now there's a clear exit. You're no longer blocking anyone's exit. And safety for the provider too, right? You don't want to be pinned in the back of a small office room if someone's really ramped up. That could be a recipe yeah. for, for, um, for badness. So take notice the environment. Notice your body position. Notice what language you're using. And then I think one of the biggest things I try to convey to residents is becoming self-aware of how they're feeling in this situation. I mean, this is a hard thing to care for. I mean, you're not used to, in, com in everyday life, people yelling and, and cursing at you and saying all sorts of things. And you have to recognize how you feel. I try to have, teach residents to pay attention to where they carry their own stress, where, they, where do they feel 
what do they feel in their chests and their abdomen and so on so they can recognize when maybe they need to take a break and step out and and kind of um, recalibrate a little bit so they can be empathetic and present for their patients. So environment and body positioning. And then the, the next key is listening to for and reflecting underlying needs and listening for and reflecting underlying values. So this whole time we're in the room with a patient who is triggered. We are not telling them what to do at all. All we're doing is we are here we're we're letting them know that we are there with them and we are walking the same path alongside them. And so if they tell if if I have a psychotic patient who's hearing voices and thinks uh, that someone is pumping methamphetamines into their house and trying to kill them and trying to kill their dog, I'm not going to say no one's pumping methamphetamines into your house. You know, even though there's a pretty good chance, not a 100% chance, but a pretty good <laughs> chance that that's not the case. And so what you do instead is you reflect back so you're not feeling safe in your house right now. Because that's, there's always, with every delusion, with every uh, voice, there's always an underlying kernel of, of truth and real experience. And so you try to reflect back, what, are they, what, are, what is their need right now? Is their need to feel safe? Is their need to feel free? What is your need? And you reflect that back and you say nothing more. And then what is their underlying value? So it turns out this patient who is concerned that someone was pumping meth into her house, her, her, her number one priority was not herself, but her dog. You know, her dog was her one companion, was this dog is keeping her alive. And her dog at the time was huddled in the corner of, of my, my office room underneath the exam table. And so she's very, because her, her owner is, you know, talking very loudly and pacing around in a small room, she's, the dog's scared. And so instead of telling her she's, you know, scaring her dog, you say, um, so it sounds like your dog is so important to you. And where is your dog right now? Like, oh, do you think that they're scared right now? And like, yeah. And then And then they're able to like, be present in the room again, maybe sit down, maybe calm their voice because that dog is their underlying value. If I tell this patient, you have to go to the psychiatric inpatient hospital right now, what are they going to do with their dog? So if you don't understand, if you don't elicit their underlying values and you don't understand what their needs and values are, you're, you're never going to get anywhere with someone who, who truly needs, perhaps that's what she needs to be um, in a safe space to get control of her voices and delusions. But, but you can't tell someone that until you know what she values. Um, you know, in the part, description that you're giving, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it, uh, in the descriptions that you're giving, two two thoughts occur to me. One is, um, do all of the um, um, what, what do we call people? Do all the people who have experienced adverse childhood experiences react that extremely? I mean, you're almost describing people who appear to be extremely mentally ill. Are there softer responses that perhaps doctors don't see if all you're talking about are the um, trauma survivors who are, you know, seeing, you know, bad guys pumping, you know, um, methamphetamines into their homes? I mean, are there less obvious uh, results of childhood trauma? Absolutely, yeah. It's a really good point. I'm really describing my population, um, which is um, 
really we're not talking about one adverse childhood event, but most people having multiple and being very severely trauma, traumatized. But there are, are many people who you know in your own life, and this is for everyone who may be listening to this, everyone knows someone who's experienced adverse childhood trauma, and that could manifest as difficulty with attachment, um, a lot of uh, difficulty trusting uh, other people, people who are maybe more reactive um, in in situations where uh, they don't feel empowered or safe. There, there are a number of ways that this can, can manifest. Um, and I do think in less traumatized populations than uh, mine, I think screening for trauma is absolutely important. And um, there are uh, a number of valida- uh, validated tools out there to do that. Um, but yeah, there are a number of ways that, that trauma can manifest that aren't as uh, extreme as the examples I'm giving you. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I want to make sure that listeners don't think that all of uh, the um, evidence of childhood uh, trauma are extreme. Um, that that you know many people that you interact with on a daily basis are exhibiting results of this childhood trauma, but it's not. I'm wearing a tin hat and I'm thinking people are pumping methamphetamines into my home. Um, so I want to make sure that, you know, sometimes I think when when we hear, oh, yes, well, that's clearly, you know, that's clearly a problem, and yet your neighbor could be doing this. You know, maybe your neighbor who is really cranky when your dog comes over on his lawn and stuff, you know, maybe some of that less, more <laughs> subtle, less uh, dramatic result is also um, uh or, you know, a result. I'm not being very articulate here. I apologize for that. Um, maybe some of the less dramatic results, maybe we could talk about that a little bit so that um, we could do – you, do you cover that in, in your program or do you just, because of the population that you deal with, are you dealing mostly with these really, you know, dramatic um, symptoms or behaviors? Absolutely, yeah. I think that if we have such limited time, um, and so sometimes the the um, the cases that have more of a of an emotional um, effect are or perhaps have a higher um, impact, and so maybe we gravitate towards that. But we do talk about um, cases with patients with chronic pain. Chronic pain is very strongly linked to trauma and can be very subtle, and um, especially. Uh, uh, kind of centralized chronic pain, and meaning pain that sort of originates in pain centers in the brain or at least accentuated by that. Um, so a lot of folks who, who suffer from chronic pain have early childhood trauma. A lot of people who suffer from obesity um, have early childhood trauma, though certainly um, that's uh, not universal. But there is a there are strong uh, connections with, you know, eating food and uh, the dopamine system and the reward system, and um, when you have um, uh, early childhood trauma, uh, people are and animals are more likely to um, sort of uh, self-medicate with through that reward system. So, uh, if you look at there are rat models uh, where they it's sort of terrible to think about, but they you know they use separation. Um, stress from rats' mothers to instill early childhood as like a surrogate for early childhood trauma, and 
those rats are far more likely to self-medicate with substances such as cocaine as well as food to the extent of having um, uh, uh, tolerance and dependence on cocaine or um, uh, overeating to the point of, of, of uh, illness. And so, yeah, there are lots of subtle uh, ways that trauma can affect behavior and um, should make us think about um, what someone's early childhood experience may have been. I, yeah, I agree with you. I appreciate you bringing that up because I don't want to contribute to the stigma around trauma by saying that all people with trauma have um, uh, very severe persistent mental illness or, or um, homelessness and so on. It just happens to be my, my population. Okay. All right. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad to know that because I think most of us who encounter people, um, uh, well, most of us are not in fields where we are encountering the people with these extreme reactions like you're seeing, um, and yet we're probably still seeing reactions. When you're dealing with your residents that you're you're trying to educate, are are, are is it hard for them to understand um, that a, an experience or experiences from 20, 30 years ago is that strong of an influence on today's behavior? You know, I think I think that I'm getting through uh, or that we are getting through, although I have to say we haven't uh, exactly evaluated them on this yet. I think I think the program needs formal evaluation. I think it's I think it's uh, it's true. Um, my perception is that uh, probably this sort of thing will take reminders over the course of their training, um, but that most of them uh, have seen enough of the results of trauma that when you explain it through uh, kind of a biomedical model like this and explain how common it is and, expl- and show the ACE study, the ACE study really is, is instrumental in this, I think most of them do get it. Okay. The other thing that struck me as you were describing some of your scenarios is, wow, how many of us have the patience, the understanding, um, the the depth of giving, I suppose, uh, emotionally giving, um, that you could deal with that kind of a population day in, day out? Are are we not maybe asking too much of of physicians who perhaps are in inner city hospitals or or not even inner city hospitals, maybe that's a prejudice on my part. I'm assuming, um, I'm assuming all the all all the, the the nutty people congregate in the cities. That so that's my prejudice, I guess. Um, but uh, are we asking too much? Is this humanly possible um, to be that sensitive, that understanding, that uh, to have that depth of caring? Especially in today's healthcare climate, where everything is move, 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 and you know, check off your checklist, and uh, you, you know, how how does that impact what you're teaching these residents? Well, I, you know, in many ways, that's what I'm trying to achieve. These residents are already having to, or in my opinion, getting to care for this population because I, I really, I truly love it. I think it's. Um, an incredible honor, and, and 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 I really enjoy the experience of it. And they're they're just my people. But I think that um, the bigger thing is not having the tools. I think if everyone in the general population had the tools to care for this population, and to care for people who have under who have experienced severe trauma, 
I, I, I don't think people would, would feel that way. I think that there are a lot of people who get very burnt out by trauma, but in many ways, they either don't have their endogenous tools or their, you know, their own cognitive tool sets and, and behavioral tool sets, or their health system don't have the tools. And so that, I think, is another um, thing that we really have at OHSU in Central City Concern, where, where I work, that many places don't. I mean, I work at a healthcare clinic that has everything you could possibly want and is nationally recognized for its services. Um, and OHSU has an inpatient addiction medicine team and the, the nursing, uh, the internal medicine floor has done really great work uh, undergoing some uh, trauma-informed care changes among their nurses that have had a, a big impact. And so it's one thing to just tell people, oh, you have to do these things. And, uh, but if you don't follow up with systemic changes, it, it's, it is, it's certainly taxing. And I think hearing about the trauma itself is taxing. There's, I have certainly had situations where I have felt um, sort of bystander trauma from just hearing time in and time out these truly horrific stories of what people have had to go through. Um, but in the long run, it's incredibly rewarding. You know, There are people who have never felt heard in the healthcare system that you can make them feel heard, you can tell them that they're not a bad human because they have a substance use disorder, they have a disease, um, they're not a bad human that they sometimes um, are, are more reactive than perhaps is um, useful for them, um, that they have, uh, they, they've had to go through some things that, that, that most of their healthcare providers have not. And so I think giving all of the, giving providers uh, the tools um, teaching them how to focus on the strengths of their population, how to focus on empowerment, um, you know, turns, the, turns these encounters around to being really poten potentially very positive experiences. It doesn't have to be all, all negative just because people come in triggered. People can come in extraordinarily triggered and leave with a smile on their face um, and leave feeling heard. Yeah. So the, uh, the, uh, another thought that I have is if we're talking about half of our population that suffers because of these long-term uh, effects from childhood trauma, that means about half of the people that you're working with and, and half of the residents that you're training are probably also um, survivors of, of childhood trauma. Yeah, that may be. It may be slightly less than half um, given some of the privilege that often funnels people into um, medicine, although, again, it, it, trauma does not, uh, uh, is not uh, separated by income perfectly, but certainly higher risk in some lower pop, uh, income uh, populations. Um, but, yeah, it, I, think, I think it means that a lot of people certainly have some childhood trauma. I think it's rare to have uh, people who make it through medical school and training who have the kinds of trauma that a lot of my patients have, have suffered. Um, not certainly many examples of, but not as common. So a lot of it has to do with, um, I don't love this word in the situation, but kind of dosage. You know, what, what severity of trauma and what, um, uh, over what duration uh, did you experience trauma as a child? That has a lot of an effect on the impact of trauma on your on your life and potential. 
Well, what about also the resiliency of that that particular individual? We don't know a lot about resiliency, but we do know that it differs. Um, Maybe the people who are not exhibiting some of the dramatic um, behaviors that you've been describing earlier, maybe they're just more resilient for whatever reason. I I certainly, yeah, resilience is, is tricky, and and I I wouldn't want to say that I I knew that that were the case. Um, I think that uh, resiliency can be, um, you know, personality trait or or a number of of different things, but it also can be uh, luck. You may have severe childhood trauma, but you also had a couple of great mentors in your life, and you had people who, and you had, you know, economic mobility and and those sorts of things. So I think it's, I, I would, you know, if you were to ask me my opinion on the matter, I certainly don't know the answer, but uh, I would say that probably has more to do with the availability of um, positive uh, role modeling, um, the availability of these things that we know that help trauma, people telling them that they're doing great, people telling them that they're worthwhile, um, economic systems telling them they're worthwhile, racial, you know, disparities and or ethnic disparities. Um, I, I think that I don't have this evidence, but I would be willing to guess that uh, someone in, in this culture who uh, is, you know, a young white male who undergoes early childhood trauma is probably more likely um, to, to still have a, a better outcome in life than someone who's, say, a young, a young black woman who it doesn't have who already has a number of things stacked up against them societally. So uh, I would guess that the resiliency mostly comes from external support, and there certainly are internal um, uh, powers that people have that can uh, protect them from the effects of trauma. But that would be my my suspicion. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, I mean, I want, and I brought that up, you know, cautiously, because I think oftentimes when we're talking re- resiliency, we tend to think that it's uh, those folks who have stronger character and, and, and it smacks of some victim blaming to a certain extent. But we really don't know a lot about resiliency and we really don't know um, what makes one person more resilient than another. Certainly those supports that you mentioned can't help, can't hurt, you know, but um, it's just a, a kind of a gray area still, isn't it? Um, when you're talking about your program with your residents, can you describe the mechanics of it? I mean, is this something that's a special class? Is this something that is a one-shot focus during their particular training period? Um, can you describe more the mechanics of how you, you handle this training? Yeah, so this is, again, brand new. And so um, where it will fit in the long term in our uh, curriculum is unclear. Uh, currently, it lives in a, a, a one-month block um, in our, our residence ambulatory curriculum, so their outpatient curriculum. And we have essentially a two-and-a-half-hour block to, to teach all of this and then take an hour or so of role-playing with uh, myself and uh, our peers and um, some of the other faculty or, or chief residents to practice these skills. And then... Um, you know, some media and a, a little toolkit card that they carry around with them. Um, that's really the extent of what we have uh, now. This is our first year offering it. Um, my hope is that this will become part of the orientation for all of the residents so they have this 
to be working on these skill sets throughout residency um, with potentially some uh, role playing and reminders uh, along the way. Um, but that's that's where it lives currently. Okay. And did you model your program on a, on another program somewhere, or did you just in, uh, develop it out of out of whole cloth? Where did this Where did the idea come from, and um, how did you develop the curriculum? Well, yeah, the idea came from really my experience with it in uh, at working at, at Central City Concern, where a number of people are, are very just brilliant at that this sort of practice, as well as um, mostly from from my patients and just this this feeling of of relief and relief uh, when I started to get better at this and started to realize that there really isn't a situation that is um, untenable anymore. And any situation, no matter how aggressive someone might be um, in in in, a, in an exam room, is really just this, this manifestation of, of of past experience, and that it can be you can work with it. And so developing, I developed these tools for myself, really, and then convinced my colleagues um, at the uh, in the in the curriculum development at the university to um, allow me to to teach a session. And so I think I think this will become a permanent part of our curriculum. That would be that would be my hope. Yeah, um, and of course, what attracted me to this and what led me to contact you was an article about one of your peer mentors. And can you tell me how the peer mentors program works? How is that part of this overall program? So the 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 peers are involved um, locally in a number of different uh, levels, but. Uh, Onisha and uh, and Chris, one of her colleagues, are, are two peers that work for the Inpatient Addiction Medicine Service, and their role is, um, you know, it's it's interesting. We have these professional boundaries that are set up um, in medicine that uh, these expectations of you know where you draw your line and what kind of interactions you have with patients and. One of the benefits of of peers uh, working with you, besides the fact that they have lived experience, which is just enormously uh, helpful. I mean, the, they have buy-in from the patients for the most part right off the bat because they're speaking the same language. They have perhaps similar backgrounds, and the and they get to have a kind of different sort of relationship. The Anisha, uh, I've seen pictures of Anisha, you know, hugging a, a patient in the community, uh, you know, doing a selfie as she she checks in with them after they have left the hospital. So Anisha and and the other peers, uh, Chris will will go see a patient right off the bat when the impact team is consulted, establish a relationship, um, establish expectations, or help along with the patient establish expectations for the hospitalization and determine whether or not they want. Um, connection to uh, addiction medicine care uh, after they leave the hospital, perhaps with medication-assisted therapy, with methadone or buprenorphine, and so on. And and then they'll often um, help them transition back into the community and help them, you know, make those connections and and so on. I reached out to Anora Englander, who is the uh, director of the Impact Program uh, and a colleague, and really a, amazing uh, uh, doctor and researcher here at OHSU. And 
she um, directed me towards Anisha as, as someone who might be uh, interested in being involved. Mm-hmm. And so what do the peers do? They they are part of the class? Are they part of the role-playing part of your class where you said that you had about an hour for role-play? Yeah, she she co-teaches the first hour with me, um, and I've had uh, chief uh, resident uh, along as well, Ben Hornung, and, and we go through these sessions. We role model together. Her and I will role model some patient interactions in this uh, the case we develop along the way where she would be uh, the patient and really you know kind of giving it to me in front of in front of the class and me trying to demonstrate some of these tools uh, that I'm trying to teach. And then she then also becomes the, uh, uh, she'll be the patient for uh, a group, a small group of residents will break up into smaller groups and then myself and anyone else who's helping me with that that session will um, break out and also uh, as respectfully as possible um, play patient scenarios that we've had in our own uh, experience uh, and then give feedback uh, along the way. Okay, well, um, one of the things that I'm hearing from you um, uh, makes me wonder um, what you're doing to address the more subtle um, survivors of ACEs. Um, uh, Some of those, you know, and and I kind of brought this up before, but it's kind of, uh, you know, by talking about the extreme cases, are we not missing a number of people, and I'm using that royal we, as physicians, you, we started out this conversation where you were talking about a lot of the physical health impacts of ACEs. If a physician has a survivor of, adult, of childhood um, um, trauma come into their office, but that patient is behaving in a way um, that is not as extreme as some of the behaviors that you've, that you've described, how do we help physicians look for trauma that could be impacting physical health if they're not exhibiting that extreme behavior? Yeah, I I, I think it's a great point. And and I would two in the role modeling session, two of the three cases were were much more subtle, and were you know one person who was in with chronic um, diffuse pain. Um, uh, another person um, who had uh, some um, sort of diabetes and obesity, that sort of thing, um, and, and didn't have any outward expression of trauma, but was very frust- acting very frustrated with the system and frustrated with recommendations and, and so on. So I think you know we, we tried to bring buy-in with some of these more extreme cases, but then also practice these tools on more subtle uh, cases. I do think that. In in I think that tra- in less traumatized populations than my own, trauma screening is is a must. I think we should be screening for early childhood trauma, um, so that even when it's not obvious, we um, develop a greater sense of of you know the burden um, in, for that patient and for their clinic population. Great. Now um, I don't know if that fully answers your question. Yeah. It does. I'm, well, it does address my question. Thank you. And um, then the other question that I have for you is 
wow, we're expecting so much of our physicians today. I mean, the last time I went to the physician, you know, I mean, oh, my gosh, I had questions about this, questions about that, questions, 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 and I was there for a hangnail or whatever. I mean, uh, aren't we Mm -hmm. asking an awful lot? Uh, Is is this humanly possible to incorporate yet one more thing into what we expect our physicians to be able to help with or track or find out about? The beauty of trauma-informed care is it's not really an extra thing. It's more of a way of being. Instead of, you know, a patient walks into the room and they're like, and they say, I want to have, you know, knee surgery. And the doctor says, you must stop smoking before you have knee surgery. And I won't have it any other way. And that, that's not trauma-informed care. It doesn't necessarily, in the end, there, you'll have a, bit, a bunch of dialogue back and forth about it. It will take just as long as if you actually approached it in a trauma-informed manner and instead said, you know, thought about your environment, thought about your body positioning, listening for and reflecting the patient's underlying needs, listening and reflecting their values, acknowledging how much work they've done on their smoking cessation, and acknowledging how, much, how hard they're trying. And then, you know, if people are triggered helping people you know, one of the things I, I like to say is help people find their feet and help their feet find the ground. You know, you can do grounding exercises with people. And then asking permission. I mean, this sounds like a lot, but truly it's just a reframing of the of the medical encounter. And and it, it ultimately, I think, takes less time or at least no more time. And I think the one thing I haven't said yet and I really want to hammer in is asking permission, asking permission, asking permission. Don't Give advice to someone who is traumatized, even even more subtle trauma, unless you ask permission to give advice. I think of ourselves as vampires. I don't know if you are a fan of Swedish vampire movies, but you can't if you're if you're a vampire, you can't you can't go into the room unless someone invites you in, and that's absolutely true for um, for taking care of. I think of all people, but but especially people with with trauma. You know, there's it takes time to build more time to build relationships if you have a history of trauma, even more subtle trauma, even just people who may have attachment uh, trouble uh, as a result of early childhood trauma. And so never going in swinging saying, you must do this until you really heard someone and, and say, is it all right if I tell you my thoughts on this problem? Is it okay if I do this? And then you've opened, you've asked, you've opened the door, or you've asked them if it's okay to open the door and they'll open the door for you. And once they have it, they're much more likely to hear you. So it's it's not necessarily an extra thing. It's just a really liberating way to care for people. And 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 I also think, you know, I, I, I do some of this in, at home <laughs> with my, my wife and even my, my two-year-old son. It is just a kind Uh-oh, way to treat people. Now they people. know. That's now all they it know. is. Yeah, how she knows. <laughs> it's just, it's just yeah. listening and hearing people and reflecting that you're hearing them and making, and, and asking if it's okay before you assault them with your your advice um and so yeah well, i'm and, not and sure if that's yeah what i'm when you tell me that you are asking patients if you can give them the advice etc what i'm hearing is less getting permission than giving back power um exactly. and i think for people who've experienced trauma um hanging on to whatever power you can get is important um people don't Absolutely. people want Personal, their own personal power, and um, although some people, 
carry that to an extreme and they use power over others as a tool to live their lives. I think most of us just want power over ourselves and when we have that power respected, that power that we have over ourselves, I think it uh, is, at least for me, it's a very calming thing and it's a reassuring thing and it lets me open up to whatever wants to come in because I know I have the control. Uh, over what's going to happen to me. Um, so when you're describing this asking process, I'm hearing basically you're giving, you're recognizing the individual's own power um, that they might Absolutely. not recognize for themselves anymore. So that's what I hear um, w- with those kinds of questions. Dr. Seaman, it has been uh, delightful to talk to you about the program. If somebody wants to know more about how you're doing this program and how they might learn from you, who would they contact? Well, they could reach out to me. I'm happy to take some email. I may not, um, I may not respond immediately, and I may respond in bulk, but I will be happy to. Um, uh, I'll let you post it uh, on your podcast if you'd like. Um, and we'll have a. a there's been a response from the uh, another recent article on this, and and I'm planning a webinar uh, in the future to describe how we designed our program. If people want to join that uh, and learn, that would be another uh, potential opportunity. Okay, terrific. I've had a great time learning more about your program, and uh, I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you so much for being with us on the show, Dr. Seaman, and thank you for sharing all the work you've done to help with uh, trauma-informed care. Uh, Thank you so much also for listening. We enjoy having you here on Three Women, Three Ways. Join us next week for another topic. Likewise. Thank and you. And hopefully we'll have some